Well, we've come to another year end, the end of 2019. We're about to flip over to go into 2020. You've probably been busy over the holidays, or you are doing what you do and celebrating with friends, um, maybe sharing your motorcycle stories, listening to past episodes of Adventure Rider Radio, maybe reading some motorcycle books. Maybe you got those for, for uh, some sort of gift. Uh, have you, do you notice how many books there are now on the market for motorcycle travel, more now than ever before? books from publishers and self-published books. And we've had many great authors that have written some of these books on the show, not just in, in this past year, but in all the years we've produced the show. Some long reads, some shorter. And of course, we have our own uh, Raw cast from Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Uh, the other show that we do, there's Sam and Graham and Brian and Shirley, all authors of numerous books, taking us to far off places and on journeys that many of us would never get to go on otherwise or, or even hear about or learn about. Um, we've had authors like Trevor Mark Hughes, Andy Benfield, Heather Ellis, Ted Simon, Tim Nottier, uh, Chantelle Simmons, Linda Bick. I mean, I know there's, there's plenty more and, and I, I sorry for any that I, I, that don't just jump to mind right now. Uh, and of course, Jeremy Craker, you know, Jeremy Craker, because we're following Jeremy and L West on their journey to Ushuaia on the series that we're doing. Uh, Jeremy's put together uh, a couple of books with compilations of adventure writer short stories from around the world that have done quite well. And this week, today, um, on this final episode for 2019, we have one more author, Ron Davis. Ron also has a, a collection of works, uh, over 40 of his own previously published uh, short stories in a book that he has out. Uh, there's a, a compilation of his motorcycle articles and essays in this book that he calls Shiny Side Up. This is Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Motorcycling can become uh, kind of a, uh, uh, I guess I like the, the, the challenge of it, that it can be all-consuming. When you're, if you're serious about motorcycling, you're living in the moment. You know, whether you're going up a mountain road or, or you're on an interstate, uh, you have to be focused. And, uh, you know, people used to say, you know, when they, at the end of a letter or something, they'd say ride safe or, you know, be safe or something like that, uh, ride smart. I, I think the, the best advice you can give to a motorcyclist is ride focused. And um, that's really the uh, a big part of the enjoyment of motorcycling is that you have to push everything away and just focus on what you're doing. Um, and there are lots of activities that do that, you know, fly fishing, um, road racing, anything like that. Uh, but, you know, we talked earlier about the attraction to motorcycling and, and I think that's, that's part of it. Um, it's a, a lot easier to kind of daydream when you're, uh, driving a car than it is when you're riding a motorcycle. Yeah. I was going to say being in the moment, that's what it's all about. Same as mountain climbers, the same thing. You, you, you have to focus so much on what you're doing, flying a plane, you focus so much on what you're doing that there's, there's no no time for your mind to drift in most cases. I mean, obviously on a, maybe on a, on a long highway or something there is, but in most yeah. cases it's not, you're, you're doing a lot of things at once. And there's a lot of calculations going on and everything's coming at you quickly and you got to make decisions and, and do something about it. 
and it, and it's all on you. Yeah. And so you have complete responsibility for for what happens. And so that's a challenge, I think. And so there's satisfaction when you can do it successfully. You know, I did this myself. chance losing your gear because your straps loosened or failed get green chili adventure gear heavy duty american-made innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles and you can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their system greenchiliadv.com max bmw has four locations they've got forty-five thousand parts and accessories available online to ready to ship to your door the moment you order maxbmw.com the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator has been proven to be the best motorcycle pump in the business. It's made by Best Rest Products, along with the Tire Iron, Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other moto gear. CyclePump.com. My name is Ron Davis. I am from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I uh, am an associate editor of BMW Owners News, uh, and I'm a retired writing teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm from a big family. My girl, my sister is quite a bit older than me, and she came home one night with uh, a guy on a Triumph uh, Bonneville, and uh, you know he was the traditional motorcyclist at that time. This is probably uh, early 60s. Package of Lucky Strikes rolled up in his t-shirt sleeve and uh, he, it was night and he asked me, hey, you want to go for a ride? And I think I was like 12 then. And uh, I said, sure. So he took me on that, on that Bonneville and we tore around town, came back, picked up my sister and they roared off. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, I want to be that guy someday. <laughs> I want to be that guy in the motorcycle. And then when I was about 15, uh, a friend of mine had a, uh, a nine, Honda 90 that, uh, and he was into customizing, I guess it was the big daddy Roth era. And he, uh, put some ape hanger handlebars on it and raked the front end. Uh, there's sissy bar. Of course, everybody had sissy bars in and, uh, painted it purple. And, uh, I thought, you know, that was pretty cool. But it sounded and like it, you said Honda 90. Honda 90. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a really was, tiny chopper. Oh yeah. It's an S90. I mean, it was a preposterous looking bike. Uh, and, uh, his dad made him get rid of it. Um, so he sold it to me, uh, the bike, uh, a cardboard box of parts and a purple helmet for 50 bucks, I think. And, uh, uh, I rode that all over the place, and even though uh, usually the, the Kickstarter was stripped, so I had to 
bump started to get it started, which was not a, a, a real attraction for girls <laughs> uh, when you have to run down the hill or, or whatever and then come back. Or ask them to push. Oh, and invariably I would, you know, forget to open the, the fuel cock or, uh, you know, forget to turn the key or something like that. So there'd be a number of <laughs> attempts. So finally I got it started and, uh, and it was a ridiculous bike. But then from there I moved up into bigger bikes and uh, I don't know. I, I think I, I don't know. I've had probably 20 bikes in my lifetime. So when you when you first started to ride and you're riding this this 90 Honda, that feeling you had when you were first riding, what you got from uh, riding a motorcycle, compared to what you get now, has has that changed? Can you talk about that? Well, you know, I think for everybody there there's uh, there's a sense of of freedom, uh, and especially when I was 15. And in fact, I just wrote a column the other day coming up on uh, Valentine's Day. And I started thinking about you know really. I think one of my big attractions to motorcycling is I, I thought that that girls really dug guys with bikes, and uh, I found that to be not really that true. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure that was one of the attractions. Um, not so much now, of course. But uh, the freedom and um, being open to everything, I think, uh, and I've written about this too, is like I love that feeling when you pull into a gas station and somebody comes up and starts talking to you about oh, you know, what kind of, I used to have a bike like that. And, uh, and you stop at a wayside and people are always coming up to you. It, it's like, you're open to everything happening around, around you, you know, the smells, the temperature. Um, it's, uh, I don't know what, uh, was a person who said that when you're in a car, you're watching a movie, but when you're on a motorcycle, you're in the movie. And I think that's what keeps me riding. You think that's, well, I was just going to mention though, the, the girls think that's pretty shallow uh, <laughs> reason for, for going for a motorcycle. Um, but I was kind of thinking more back to that thing where you, you had your sister's boyfriend that took you for a ride on the bike. And did yeah. you see that with that? Is that what it was? Are you thinking, oh, well, this is going to be, uh, this is going to get me a date or was it more of that feeling of, of that, that no, freedom? It, it was, it, that might've been some some of it, but it was more the exhilaration of just tearing around town. It was a hot summer night, and um, this this guy really knew how to ride. And uh, I, I can just remember that experience so clearly. You know, holding on to his T-shirt and leaning into the corners, and this is like a whole different thing. You know, this, this column that I wrote recently about girls. Uh, one experience that that I remembered was. I had a girlfriend who really wanted to learn how to ride motorcycles and we did a lot of parking lot time. And uh, finally she said, you know, I'm ready to go out on the highway. And uh, so we came to a uh, stop sign, pull out on this highway. And as soon as we pulled out this, I remember perfectly, this Buick LeSabre was bearing down on us going about 50 miles an hour. And, and she totally forgot what she was supposed to do. And so we're winding out this, this Honda 350 <laughs> to the red line and I'm screaming, shift, shift, pull over. You're killing us. <laughs> and, and, and not only did she never want to ride a motorcycle, she was done with me at that point too. So as an instructor, <laughs> hey, you're right. You know, cause she saw me, this is the way Ron reacts in a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were riding on the back of her bike as she's learning to ride. Uh, yeah. Right. It's right. Sort of an yeah. unlikely position, isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> 
you, you went through a bell curve, the same as I think a, a lot of us do that, that thing. I, I mentioned bell curve earlier as far as um, your interest in motorcycles. But in that also is, is another one that probably goes in the other direction of the, uh, as you start out riding when you're young, you get enthused about it, you ride lots, and then it sort of disappears as you have a family. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, I think there are a couple things that made me take a break from it. Uh, first of all, I was a, a school teacher in a small town. So um, basically, I was pretty poor at that time. So it just seemed like a luxury. But secondly, with kids there, my wife and I both agreed. It wasn't like my wife saying, you're done with motorcycles. It, we both agreed that that was a risk that was not worth taking at that time. Uh, but once my kids were older and I was a little smarter, I hope, and wiser, <laughs> and that's so impetuous, uh, the, uh, then I got back into it. But then your wife shows up with, with yeah, a helmet for you and it sort of gives well, you the okay. Yeah, she she knew that, you know, every time a motorcycle would go by, I would look longingly at it. And I had a buddy that used to bring over an old uh, Honda Scrambler every once in a while and let me ride. And she saw how much I enjoyed that. And so she knew I wanted to get back into it. And uh, it was uh, um, kind of a neat thing for her giving me that helmet was her tacit approval to, you know, start doing this again. How many years ago was that? Uh, I think it was right around 1999. And and does she have any regrets about that now? Well, <laughs> she does refer to whatever bike I have at the time. She refers to as my quote little girlfriend, um, and and so I think there might be a little bit of jealousy. Well, maybe not. Uh, and uh, but. She makes a joke about how much attention I lavish on on my bikes, and uh, so I, I don't know. That bothers me a little bit. Uh, it's, it's not a girlfriend. My bike is more like a partner. I think uh, it's like uh, you know, it starts, it runs, it takes me where I want to go. It gives me that exhilaration when we're going somewhere. It, it's sort of like a contractual <laughs> arrangement, uh, not really a romantic thing. You mentioned that you're an enthusiast now, which which sort of the way you're saying it, it's like you've downgraded some over the years. So what, how has that changed for you for the bike? Uh, I actually, um, I, sold, uh, I sold and bought another bike last July. I've been riding a 700 GS, which is a great bike. It was just perfect for me. Fairly, not really heavy, but lots of power and uh, good for touring. Uh, I had some TourTech um hard cases on that and really fitted it out nicely. It's a nice bike. But since I was uh, not putting as many miles on and doing mainly just short runs, I, I was kind of, uh, I, I felt like getting back to small bikes again, something that you can just really uh, whip around. And, uh, and so I sold that bike and uh, bought a BMW G310GS, which is a pretty light bike. It's one cylinder. It's 311 cc's, I think. And um, just a very simple machine. Um, and uh, that's been a blast to, to ride around. I really enjoyed that. It, it kind of takes me back to when I first started riding. One of the chapters in your book talks about actually shopping for, I think you're going from an R65 and you were, you were looking at the 700. You went to mm -hmm. that. Is this like a downsizing thing you're doing here? Like, like a purposeful yeah. downsizing and why? Yeah, I'd say that, uh, that I have downsized just because, um, costs are, 
are lower. I'm not going out to California and back anymore. Uh, at least I don't see that happening. If I did, I would buy a different bike. Uh, but I, I like the idea of getting back to just a simple bike that, you know, I can see everything on it. Um, I can do some maintenance on it and, uh, just kind of fun to, uh, uh, tear around on the twisties here where you're not going really fast. You know, um, some of the roads around here are so curvy. It's like, uh, the tail of the dragon, Wisconsin style. And you're, you're going like, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour through these, uh, zigzagging through these bluffs. And it's a perfect bike for that. But often people will look at small bikes as beginner bikes. So they'll, you know, if somebody asks you, and I think you even have this in one of your articles, somebody asking you about a bike and you're saying, start off with a small bike. And I think you wrote that. Or maybe it was start off with a big bike, tongue in cheek. But in any case, it's a common thought process to start with a small bike and go to a big bike as you become a better rider. I don't really subscribe to this theory myself at all. Um, but so do you it's feel like you're... It's a puzzlement to me, especially, you know, I see it and BMW is no exception. It seems like they're making bigger and bigger and faster and faster bikes. And that doesn't appeal to me at all. Uh, I guess, um, I guess I shouldn't say that, but uh, to me, uh, I had a 650 Funduro once, which is a BMW. Um, That was a fun bike. That seemed like the perfect size. And like I said, those, uh, Suzuki V-Stroms. I had a couple of those 650s. That, that was a blast. They were really fun. Mm, so you don't feel like that you're riding around on a beginner bike. You don't sort of get off it and feel silly that you're, oh, I'm, I'm on, on the small bike or, or not mention the size to your friends. You know, there might have been a time in my life when I worried about something like that, but uh, not anymore. <laughs> well, and that's where I was going with this because I'm wondering, when I was asking about your riding, how it's changed, have you changed like, I mean, and obviously you have because you've gotten older, but, but I know that you, you have the, you mentioned something about, um, uh, the, the more I learn, I think it, and I'm paraphrasing, the more I learn, the, the less I know. And, and I, yeah. I think exactly what you're saying is, is what I always say. I always say that when you finally get to the point where you realize just how little, you know, that's when you're actually learning something. That's when you get to that point. Does that sort of play into your choice of, of downsizing? Oh yeah, for sure. And I think that, that philosophy applies to much more than just motorcycling. You know, uh, the more I learn, the less I know. Uh, it just kind of makes me curious about something else and to explore something else. And, and actually, uh, since I've had this smaller bike, I've been working more on technique, uh, uh, from reading, uh, some, uh, books about, uh, riding technique, especially in the Appalachians and trying some of those things. And I think it's, I, I don't know, on a small bike, it just seems easier to try out, you know, uh, and instead of worrying about getting a bigger, faster, more expensive bike, working more on my style as a rider. Where do, um, where do all your, your chapters for shiny side up come from? Uh, they come from past experiences. Um, Sometimes I'll read about something. There's a chapter in there about, uh, I can't remember. I don't have my book with me here. I just sold my last one that I had here at home. But uh, there's a chapter in there about um, a guy who worked in a tunnel in uh, that went between Italy and France. And um, he wrote a, a BMW, but his job was to run back and forth through this seven-mile tunnel if there were, uh, if there was trouble. Well, it's an amazing story and it's a long story, so I'm not going to go into it. The guy is a real hero, uh, in what happened, but, um, 
you hear a little thing like that, and I like to do research and do uh, stories about that. I went to a, an auto museum a couple of years ago and saw the Chinese BMW, um, and uh, that really kind of triggered my curiosity, and I did some research and wrote uh, an article about that. So sometimes it comes from stuff I pick up from other writers, other magazines. Sometimes it's from my own experience. Well, well, the story about the the rider that worked in the tunnel, that's an interesting story. I mean, if you can tell it in a somewhat shorter version. Okay. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll yeah. do that. Um, I don't have my book with me, so I, I can't think of his name offhand. But this was, uh, there was this tunnel, seven-mile tunnel between Italy and France. And he, every once in a while, would ride through it in case somebody was having car trouble or something like that. We're going to take a short break to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you. But stick around. As you can hear, we got more coming up. See and be seen. That's a great saying for a motorcyclist. And that's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Uh, we had Daryl from Cyclops on a while back. Cyclops is a family-operated business. And I like that, you know, because... With a family-operated business, you, you can pretty much guarantee this can be run with pride because they're the ones answering the phones. And the Van Nuen houses, that's actually Daryl's last name, um, that's what they are. They're all about quality. They make all kinds of lighting for motorcycles. They're riders themselves. In fact, um, you should probably check out their Instagram account. Uh, there's some great photos coming up in, on their account. Anyway, um, all kinds of lighting for us riders, including auxiliary lighting and LED replacement headlights. And as you probably know with LED, is it's stunningly bright. It's instant on and has a low power draw. So that frees up energy for things like heated vests, etc., which is really important if you ride a bike that doesn't have a, a, a huge charging system on it. Um, but otherwise, even still, it, it lessens the load on your stator. They have the Evo Safety Turn Signal System. Now, this is really cool. It turns your front turn signals into bright white driving lights and your rear signals into super bright red brake lights. So bright LEDs to catch the uh, attention of the car behind you. And that is just paramount or in front for that matter. Um, again, CNBC, seen. Cyclops Adventure Sports, they've got a ton of lighting gear just for motorcycles, but actually they've got it for dirt bikes, snowmobiles, even bicycles. Um, they're really like lighting is their thing. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. And please mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. IMS has been around since 1976, making foot pegs like the ones that I run on my bike. They have uh, all kinds of pegs to choose from for us adventure riders. They've got the ADV-1 and the ADV-2, which are large platform pegs meant for more comfortable um, ride on the highway, but also the added leverage you get when you take a big bike off-road. And um, because, I mean, let's face it, we've learned this, I'm sure, through our rider skills program. Weighting those pegs is what you do to steer your bike while you're standing up. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. I can't think of his name offhand, but this was, uh, there was this tunnel, seven mile tunnel between Italy and France. And he, every once in a while, would ride through it in case somebody was having car trouble or something like that and try and uh, help this person out. Well, he had just made his first run through one morning and um, a, uh, a semi was going through. And they think now that 
somebody had flicked a cigarette and he had gone into the air intake in his in his truck and he got halfway through and he smelled smoke so he stopped his truck and got out and saw white smoke coming from underneath his truck uh well he never should have stopped but once he stopped the flame started to spread and it turns out he was carrying i think it was a margarine and uh it turned into just a huge conflagration um and uh, it was not only the, his cargo that was burning, but the insulation in the semi. It ended up about five or six different semis uh, started on fire. And uh, this guy who was on the French, the French end started making trips in to pick up people because cars wouldn't run anymore in the tunnel because the oxygen was gone. So he was going in and picking up people on his motorcycle and carrying them back out to the mouth of the tunnel, uh, sometimes unconscious people. And uh, on his last trip, uh, they were overcome by the smoke, couldn't see anything. And so they had little like safety chambers. And he and this guy that he was carrying went into the safety chamber, but they weren't built for the kind of heat that was coming out of this tunnel. And uh, I think there were about 40 or 50 people that that died in this. Uh, But anyway, um, he was a, a... a hero in both France and Italy. And every year in March, there is a huge group of motorcyclists that meet at the southern entrance of the new tunnel. It's been rebuilt and uh, ride through and ride back just to commemorate this act of heroism. So it's, it's a pretty neat story. And they're still doing that now? They're still getting together yeah. and, and doing the memorial yeah. ride? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a, a big plaque at the at, at both entrances commemorating this guy, and uh, and what's ironic is shortly before he did this, he had been offered a desk job, which was a promotion, but he decided that he preferred being able to ride his bike back and forth through the tunnel, and um, I guess it, that was a not a great decision, <laughs> but oh, uh, he never made it out. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you have another story from um, your book, Shiny Side Up, that'll sort of tell listeners or give give listeners an idea uh, of what the book is like? Yeah, uh, there's one in there about a guy named Val Immel, and um, I I had just heard you know like little fragments of his story and got really intrigued with it, and so I rode my, my motorcycle up to his house. He lived way up in northern Wisconsin, and. Uh, it doesn't have a lot to do with uh, motorcycling. We talked about motorcycles, and and um, he was. It turned out that, again, this is kind of a long story, but his family uh, were in the Ukraine, and the whole family, uh, after the Russian Revolution, was sent to Siberia, and. They had an uncle or some relative that was in the Communist Party, and they managed to get out of Siberia, but they had been landowners. Uh, well, of course, after the revolution, when they came back to Ukraine, now they were just going to be workers on the farm that they used to own. Then the Second World War was brewing, and his father was conscripted into the Russian army. Meanwhile, this guy Val, his his baby sister and his mother um, – were suspected of being Jewish. They weren't Jewish, but the name kind of sounded Jewish. And so they were arrested and put into a work camp for the duration of the war. (laughs) Back to the father, he was uh, captured by the Germans. And the Germans said, well, 
you can join our army or you're going to be executed. So he chose to fight for the German army. And and then eventually he was captured by the English and spent the rest of the war in a English POW camp. At the end of the war, Val's father gets out and tries to track down his family. And through finding out where the resettlements were and, and so on, his mother and, and, and Val had been liberated from a prison camp. He started going through little towns, waiting for nightfall and calling out his wife's name, which sounds like a, a crazy story. Yeah. But um, someone that knew his wife heard him and knew where she was and uh, came running out and told him, I know where your wife is. And they got reunited and eventually they immigrated uh, to the um, United States. And one of the funniest things uh, Val told me is when uh, – that you had to be sponsored in those days in order to immigrate. And uh, they had taken a train from New York to Minneapolis. And then from Minneapolis, they went back east into northern upper Michigan because a lumber company had sponsored them. And his wife looked around at the snow and the pine trees and everything. And she was like, oh, mein Gott, we're going back to Siberia. (laughs) But uh, what's really amazing and what made it a great story was Val and um, and really he has three sisters. They all have led very successful lives and uh, turned out really great for them. So, you know, it's not a motorcycling story, but motorcycling is what led me into meeting Val and and then hearing this amazing story. Um, and you turned that story into an article. Yep, yep. How do they buy that for a motorcycle-based story? I mean, where does the motorcycle come into that? That's a really good question, you know. <laughs> uh, Bill Wigan, who's the editor of uh, BMW Owners News, is uh, is incredibly, incredibly... Uh, liberal with what he lets me write. And uh, so he gives me a really long leash. Um, And there are some stories in there where uh, really it's a a pretty thin connection to motorcycling on some of those stories. But uh, actually that is what made uh, the book, at least so far, kind of successful is because you don't have to be a motorcyclist to enjoy many of the stories that are in my in my book. Uh, some are technical, um, but uh, many are just where a motorcycle might have been uh, the trigger for the story, but might not be integral to the story. Yeah, because the tie in on that one is your ride to go see him to do this interview. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that that's something, you know, you asked about how my riding has changed. Um, that was a day I never should have been on a motorcycle because it was like 40, 50 mile an hour sideways winds and I was battling it all the way. Uh, I, I don't do that stuff now. <laughs> it's like if it's <laughs> raining uh, or if it's really windy, uh, you know, I when I've young, been younger, I've ridden through snowstorms. I don't do that stuff now. Uh, but why not, though? Because I know you, you, we've talked about the romance of it, and, and you've written about riding through some of the stuff and, and how you sort of <laughs> persevere. And I think you sort of vacillate between, like, not even sure yourself, wondering whether it's machoism or you're, you're trying to prove something to yourself. What has changed? What have you lost from that till now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, physically, I'm 68 right now. So some of those things, it just I, 
you know, riding for a long distance or something like that. I, I just don't feel like physically I, I'm up to it. It's not safe. Uh, and, you know, having done some of those things, I, I don't know. I guess I'm just, I'm soft. <laughs> I'm weak. <laughs> <laughs> Is it though partly that you, you feel like, I mean, I don't know, when we do these things, uh, when we do these these pushes, I guess, we push ourselves around these these crappy conditions, are we trying to prove something? I mean, do you think that the average person is doing that, like even subconsciously? I do. I, I think that's uh, one of the attractions of motorcycling is that you're doing something that not everyone else can or, or I guess wishes to do. Um, it, this is kind of a, a, a sidebar, but I used to play in a band and um, I'll never forget when we were playing one night and um, the bass player uh, turns to me and, and it was between songs or a break or something like that. He says, look at all those guys out there. And I said, yeah, he says, they want to be us. <laughs> and I always have that, that I, I kind of, you know, think of that when I'm riding a motorcycle, I think there are people that look like, you know, that looks like fun. I'd like to try that, but they never do. So, you know, um, being a motorcyclist makes you um, kind of a, it's, you're part of a select group because you're willing to take that risk and learn how to do it. Um, there's a, there's a certain amount of egotism, I think, when it comes to riding motorcycles. Whether you recognize it or not, like whether it's conscious or subconscious. Yeah. I, I, and I've had people say to me, um, the only reason uh, people ride motorcycles is they want people to look at them. And I have to admit, <laughs> there might be some of that in there, you know? Well, well, kids aren't doing it now. I mean, we know the numbers are dropping. That's, you know, a big thing in our industry. It's no secret. The numbers are dropping. Young kids aren't riding. You started riding because you saw the glory in it. You saw the, I think most people do. The excitement for me, it was the freedom. I saw freedom and adventure in it. Oh, yeah. Why do you think kids aren't riding now? What? Why aren't they not seeing what we saw? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, the economics of it. That's one reason probably maybe the, the, it's the risk. Uh, but I don't know. I've worked with high school students for a long time and I don't see as much, I guess I'd call it adventurism in, in especially teenagers that I used to see. I mean, in my generation, um, when I was young, you know, my, my mom would kick me out of the house and say, see you at dinner time," <laughs> you know, and I'd mm -hmm. go out in the woods and walk downtown or do whatever. And, and, and I don't think that's the, the life experience that, you know, kids and, and teenagers are having now. It might have something to do with the fact that I was the youngest of, you know, of a, a big family, too. And my, by that time, I think my parents had kind of a laissez-faire attitude anyway. But uh, I think it was true of my friends, too. It was like, uh, yeah, go outside, do whatever you want. And that kind of adventure, that sense of adventure, um, uh, I don't know is, is really as much there. And it's not just motorcycling. It's just um, doing any kind of ambitious uh, sort of undertaking uh, is as popular as it used to be. Yes, I don't, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And, and things have changed. I mean, nowadays you tell your kid to go outside. I don't want to see you till dinner. You open the door and you find them sitting on the step playing with their phone. <laughs> you know, it's, I know. it's, it's I know. definitely changed. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you, um, if you were sort of asked to try and sell someone on uh, motorcycle riding a, a young person, would you, and, and how would you approach it if you would? Uh, I've been asked uh, quite a few times, do you think, you know, I should try motorcycling. You think I'd like it. And I'm always very tentative in my response. Um, I, I think I always preface it with motorcycling is dangerous. There's no two ways around it. And even if you're a really good rider, uh, 
there's going to be, you know, dangerous incidents. Um, in fact, one thing I've noticed uh, in the last couple of years is it's become even more dangerous to, to ride, at least on the street, uh, than it used to be because people don't see you. So I, I guess I, I'm very ambivalent about trying to talk somebody into motorcycling. I can talk about, you know, the fun you'll have and how there's always something to learn and you can go places that other people don't go to and it opens you up to a community um, of fellow travelers that riding in a car doesn't. But uh, if you get into it, don't blame me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it, you can't get away from the fact that it, it is dangerous. Do you think that part of it could be that the older riders have a point of view like that? For instance, we see things in a different light than we than we did 50 years ago, for instance. And I, I don't mean just us. I mean, as in society. So, like, in other words, if, if you look back at a, an old factory or something, you might see that somebody stood over, a, you know, some sort of grinder or something like that. And, and they were, uh, and I, as a matter of fact, I think you did when you were handling um, lumber right. as a kid when you were working in a, a lumber mill. If you went and looked at that lumber mill today, you would say that is unbelievably dangerous at the time it didn't seem that dangerous so is it is it they were recognizing danger or they were just making more of it now yeah i don't know because there's there, there's something about teenagers you know I, I know that teenagers feel like they're invulnerable and i see them taking all kinds of, of risks I, I used to see it all the time uh but uh i don't know i, I guess i i'm not sure it's a tough one because uh, I hear a lot of people say the same thing, and I and I feel the same way that you do. When I if someone asks me about riding, I, I feel compelled to point out those things. But yet, if someone's to ask you about riding a bicycle, you know that's the last thing on your mind, mm-hmm. and it's still a dangerous thing. I mean, you can still get hurt on a bicycle. As a matter of fact, I think uh, you know one research stu- one study I, I read said that mile for mile, um, it's more dangerous to walk in a city than to ride a bike, a motorcycle. I believe that's true. Uh, in fact, uh, I think there's a story in uh, Shiny Side Up about uh, parking lots and the statistics about the number of people who are struck in parking lots as pedestrians mm-hmm. is, is it's amazing, you know, because people are looking at their phone as they're walking through a parking lot. Uh, you know, I, I had uh, my brother lives in um, Camarillo, South uh, in Southern California, and uh, his grandson came out to visit us this past summer and I guess he's about an eighth grader and he saw my bicycle sitting there and he says oh can I ride your bike and I and I said sure and he, and he said well I've never ridden a bike before you're gonna have to show me how to do it and it was like what wow. <laughs> I, I, I mean well you live in California and, and you know what it's like there well they're either in this walled in enclosure around their house and they don't go out on the highway, uh, which was near his house. So he had never had a bicycle and never learned. And uh, so I tried to teach him. And of course, you know, he took about three words of advice and started doing it. (laughs) But uh, that was amazing to me, you know. If there's one book on motorcycling, you would recommend that that someone should read aside from your shiny side up that you've just published um, because uh-huh. I'm sure that's going to be your first choice. But what would that book be? The best book on motorcycling. Uh, I, I don't want to sound immodest, but is a lot like my book and it's by Peter Egan and it's called leanings. And in fact, uh, Peter Egan was a columnist uh, for cycle world and uh, other magazines. And 
his stories, there's leanings one, there's leanings two, there's leanings three, and then there's best of leanings, all by Peter Egan. And uh, that's a great book because, uh, and I enjoy it anyway, because it's more about um, the people and his experiences um, and, and his love for motorcycling. There's a real human side to it that I felt that book has been an inspiration to me because you don't have to be a motorcyclist to enjoy that book. Um, and, and was really, you know, I'm not that concerned about how many books I sell because the most gratifying thing that happened to me since it came out was Peter Egan, uh, who I guess is sort of my idol wrote to me and said he had read my book and, um, and gave me a great endorsement and enjoyed it and, um, talked about how we have had many of the same experiences. But if I had to recommend uh, one book, that would be it. Well, that was Ron Davis with his book, Shiny Side Up, Musings on the Improbable Inclination to Travel on Two Wheels. That is through Road Dog Publications. And it's available, I guess, anywhere you find books. Um, but another one from Road Dog, another one from uh, Mike Fitterling at RoadDogPub.com. They've got... Um, uh, Mike Fitterling does just a, a whole stable of motorcycle books at Road Dog Pub. Of course, they're they're all available. Graham Field's book is in there. Um, we've had other authors on here um, that are also available at Road Dog Publications. Um, if you're interested in in looking at motorcycle books, actually, I would strongly recommend you drop by RoadDogPub.com. Um, if you happen to email him, let Mike know that um, you heard about him here on Adventure Rider Radio. But um, like I said, he's got a whole stable of books there and um, a lot of really great reads, a lot that we've had here on the show. RoadDogPub.com, um, or you can get Shiny Side Up anywhere books are sold. And of course, that link will be in our show notes as always. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener, thank you very much. I want to wish you all the best for the new year, and that's it. That's the last you're going to hear from us in 2019. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks very much for listening. Talk to you next week. This is ADV woman Pat Jakes, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 